From New Mexico to Pennsylvania, Indiana to Utah, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, woke policies have caused businesses to flee the downtown areas of our nation's biggest cities. Andrew Krapusets of Red Balloon is here to explain why they won't be coming back. We now know who will face off against Ron DeSantis in the race for governor of Florida. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story on primary election results in Florida and Oklahoma. President Joe Biden has announced plans to forgive a portion of student college loan debt, now to be repaid by your tax dollars. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine joins us with details. And the recent congressional tax and spending binge amounts to economic malpractice. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council explains why on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Draconian COVID-19 restrictions, along with woke economic and public safety policies, have caused businesses to shutter their doors and leave the downtown areas of big cities across the nation. Andrew Krapusets is founder and CEO of RedBalloon.Work. He is here to detail why businesses have left and why they will not be returning. Andrew, welcome to American Radio Journal. Andrew, as we look at downtown areas around the country, obviously they're in cities that are heavily controlled by Democrats, have been for decades, if not more than a century. What do you see happening in these downtown areas as you look around the country? There is really a, a dying of activity happening in these, in these cities. Uh, there was an interesting study actually recently by um, Berkeley, of all places, looking at downtown areas and understanding how much activity is happening down there. And traditionally, those studies would look at how many people are shopping at stores or what the amount of office space is being rented. But for this study, they actually looked at cell phone usage data, um, which should be a little disturbing that they can do that and see what you're doing and tracking you. But there it is. Um, and they actually built a what they called a recovery quotient, an RQ. And they looked at how much activity of just shopping and living and working was happening in these downtown areas. And the results should not be surprising for most conservatives because they then ranked all the cities based on how much activity was happening, call it two and a half years ago before the pandemic, and what is happening now. And at the top of the list of cities that have really lost the vibrancy that we know from downtowns in San Francisco, Portland, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, Minneapolis, Oakland, right? These are cities that have either significant homeless problems, um, but I would also argue have crushed the small mom-and-pop shops, the small businesses that are the lifeblood of America and the lifeblood of those downtown areas. One of the mantras of the woke left throughout the past couple of years has been defund the police. Can you talk for a minute, Andrew, about the impact of crime that is surging in many of these cities? Crime is a huge factor, but there's two pieces of that. Defund the police is a big one, and I've talked to police officers in these large cities who uh, basically said, I don't want to work here anymore. The city doesn't have my back anymore. We're not recruiting really anymore. And so they have a significantly decreased workforce for the law enforcement community. But 
Even beyond that, when you have city policies in places like Seattle or Portland where they're buying tents and drugs for the homeless community, that also has a significant impact on the safety of those downtown areas and the ability for people to want to be there. I mean, we talked about San Francisco. San Francisco's activity downtown is down 70% from what it was before the pandemic. So you have a town that used to be a bustling, fun place to be and simply is not anymore. There's, it's more of a ghost town unless you're homeless, and then you're going to see a significant uh, population there which brings uh, fear and anxiety to a lot of people, right? If you know that there aren't policemen, there are people who are potentially on drugs who are living there, um, I know I wouldn't want to go downtown. In terms of economic policies in these cities, Andrew, talk a bit now about taxes and taxation. We see a lot of times there are various policies implemented, family sick leave, et cetera, that place additional burdens on business. Are we seeing those in places like Portland, San Francisco, Chicago, et cetera? Oh, absolutely. And you just saw Citadel, which is the second largest hedge fund, leave Chicago, which is near the top of this list, leave Chicago. The CEO was making $200 million a year, and he moved to Florida. And they asked him, why? Why are you taking this iconic business out of the downtown Chicago area? And he said, well, there's there's three reasons. Uh, the first one is my um, executives have been mugged and knifed several times just going downtown. And so it's really a safety issue, right? You don't want to have an executive of a hedge fund uh, being mugged on the way to the office. So that's the first thing. The second one was regulations, that it is just so much harder to get things done in these liberal cities where uh, the politicians are running the, uh, the the roost and they are pushing their worldview in all the businesses. And then the last one, he says, is taxes, right? Chicago, San Francisco, a lot of these cities and blue states are adding additional tax burden to these businesses and to these wealthy individuals. So why would you want to stay there and have your money taken, have your safety taken, and have your freedom taken, uh, the thing that really has made America great. These entrepreneurs who had small businesses, or even, as you've referenced, large businesses in downtown areas, are they just simply going out of business and finding other jobs? Or do you see a migration into suburban areas and red states where you don't have these problems? Yeah, you definitely have the de-urbanization of America happening right now. People are tired of the policies that have made these urban areas very unpleasant. Also, COVID was just devastating to small businesses, right? If you're not an Amazon or a Facebook or one of the big woke tech businesses, being shut down for a year and not being able to service your customers would destroy almost any business. And it's ironic that the liberals who have always loved the mom and pop and shop local, their policies around COVID have been crushing to these small businesses that are really the lifeblood of these downtown areas. We're also seeing the tax data. Uh, if you look at the 2020 tax data, which is the most recent tax data that really dives into this, it shows that a net out-migration from the state of New York of a quarter million people to places like Florida and Texas and Idaho, where they're looking for freedom and not only is it a net out migration of a quarter million people from New York, but it also they took with them $19 billion of annual taxable income. So you realize the long term effects of this type of migration of hardworking, wealthy people is going to have dramatic impacts on the power and the budgets of these states. So when you 
tax your population to death. It's funny how they leave, they vote with their feet, and then suddenly you don't have the power or the budget to be able to continue to push your woke policies. We have been talking with Andrew Krapusets, who is founder and CEO of Red Balloon. What is Red Balloon? And tell us a bit about it, Andrew. Also, where can folks go to access that site? It's redballoon.work. I was the CEO of a large tech company about a year and a half ago, and they decided I was too conservative and Christian. That is the board decided I was too conservative and Christian for their liking. And so I found myself delightfully unemployed, and I thought, well, how can I help other people who might be in the same situation? So redballoon.work is a job board for people who want freedom in the workplace and don't want wokeness in the workplace. So if you go to redballoon.work, you can find jobs with companies who care about the Constitution and care about your freedom. You can also follow us on all the major woke and non-woke social media platforms at Red Balloon Work, and we'd love to have more Americans stand up for freedom, um, and that's what we're doing at redballoon.work. Andrew Krapusets of redballoon.work. Andrew, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. At the Club for Growth, we, as usual, have Scott Parkinson keeping an eye. We have some action in Washington and some action in the primaries in the states. We're going to touch on both today. Scott, good to have you here. Great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. We will begin with the primaries, particularly in the state of Florida. Some major decisions made there this past week. What did voters do? Starting out with the governor's race, the Democrats nominated former Governor Charlie Crist, who's been serving in the House of Representatives and been a side-by-side ally with Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. And they nominated him over Nikki Freed, the current agricultural commissioner, Chris actually won that race in pretty much a landslide. So he'll be facing the current governor, Ron DeSantis, in November. I think that that's a a big, exciting race for people in Florida. DeSantis is a very, very strong contrast to somebody like Charlie Chris. And obviously, Florida's been the free state of Florida for the last several years, while many other areas throughout the, the country have essentially been closed down and very much restricted in in terms of the day-to-day freedoms that most people are used to enjoying. So that's going to be, I think, really one of the the biggest races in the country when it comes to November. Charlie Chris said this week that he doesn't even want people that supported Ron DeSantis to vote for him. He says that if you've got that hatred in your heart, that that should stay where it is. And, you know, he's not coming after Ron DeSantis voters. Well, you know, that's good news to me because we've also dramatically increased voter registration for Republicans in the free state of Florida. And I think that leads to a big wipeout of Charlie Chris and Ron DeSantis winning the election. And there were some primary elections for nominations to the U.S. House of Representatives as well? Yeah. So Club for Growth PAC and Club for Growth Action got involved in the 13th Congressional District, which is actually Charlie Chris's current seat. And we endorse Anna Paulina Luna over Kevin Hazlett and Amanda Mackey and a couple other candidates. Anna ended up winning that race pretty easily by about 10%. And we're really looking forward to having her serve in the House of Representatives alongside many of our conservative leaders. She's just going to be a, a great communicator and champion in a lot of the same ways that we see somebody like Lauren Boebert helping lead the discussion for conservatives in the House. If you slide down to the 15th Congressional District, Laurel Lee, who served as the Secretary of State in the DeSantis administration, won that race pretty easily over a state senator named Kelly Stargell and a state representative named Jackie Toledo. And then if you pop up to Jacksonville Media Market, 
Aaron Bean won in a landslide over Eric Aguilar, and Aaron Bean will be a member of Congress come January. And then in a, in a semi-competitive race, Corey Mills defeated Anthony Sabatini in the Orlando area for the 7th Congressional District. This is a seat that was vacated after Stephanie Murphy decided to retire, and redistricting is, is making that a favorable pickup opportunity for Corey. So we're excited about these new candidates in Florida. And if we also shift a little bit over to the middle of America, we had some big races in Oklahoma. Senator Inhofe previously announced he plans to retire at the end of this cycle. And so they held a special election. And this was the runoff, and Mark Wayne Mullen defeated T.W. Shannon. So Mark Wayne Mullen will, will be a United States senator come January. And then to fill his seat, Club for Growth PAC and Club for Growth Action got involved in a big way for Josh Burkeen, and Josh Burkeen ended up winning by about 5% over Avery Fricks. This was really a, a big win for the conservative movement over the establishment, what's known as thousands of points into these media markets in eastern Oklahoma to support Fricks. And they had Mike Huckabee and Dan Crenshaw and other establishment Republicans serving as surrogates for him. But Josh is a disciple of Tom Coburn, who I think a lot of listeners remember being one of the most effective conservative senators and uh, previously being a U.S. representative prior to his passing a couple of years ago. So we're really excited for Josh Burkeen. We're excited for Anna Paulina Luna. And we're really excited for November. I think that uh, obviously races are getting tight and voters are starting to make decisions on what direction they want to go. But we feel like we've got a strong message. Meanwhile, back in the nation's capital, Joe Biden has been busy giving away more of other people's money, this time supposed college loan forgiveness. Tell us a bit about that. Well, do you remember the uh, line in, in 2009 when they said, you think that health care is expensive now, wait until they make it free? Well, I think that that's the same instance here. You thought that college tuition was expensive, wait until they make it free. Well, what Joe Biden has done this week is he's forgiving the student loan obligations of about $300 billion. And he's also injecting class warfare here. He's saying if you, if you make $125,000 or less, you can have $10,000 of your debt forgiven, and you can have up to $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients money forgiven as well. So that price tag's obviously going to rise even more. We think that it's going to impact the overall costs of higher education, And the bottom line is that somebody's got to foot the bill for that. And the White House this week, the press secretary had no real answer for who's going to be paying that. But I want everybody that's listening right now to understand that they're going to be paying that bill. Uh, A lot of us have responsibly paid off our loan obligations if we went to college and and extracted student loans. But what this is, is basically uh, another one of those hat tips to the radical left on, hey, you want progressive policies? Joe Biden's got no idea what he's doing. The executive orders are written by the Department of Education and also by the West Wing. And now they're forcing it down the throat of every other American and certainly exacerbating what I think is a recession and has been substantiated once again by new GDP numbers this week, showing that we were two consecutive quarters in negative growth. We have been talking with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. And Scott, tell us a bit about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. If anybody's listening and wants to become a member for free, check us out at clubforgrowth.org. Scott, again, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. 
A student loan forgiveness executive order issued by President Joe Biden means those who never borrowed the money will now repay it. For details and a look at the impact of the order, we turn to Eric Baim of Reason Magazine. By now, you've probably heard something about President Joe Biden's plan announced on Wednesday to relieve between $10,000 and $20,000 in student debt from thousands of Americans who owe federal college loans. This is the short-sightedest of all policies. There's actually so many problems with this idea that it will be difficult to get through them all in just a few minutes But we're going to try our best. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. As I said, President Joe Biden on Wednesday announced a plan to forgive nearly $300 billion. It's actually going to end up being a little more than $300 billion in student loan debt. Those benefits will be available to individuals earning up to $125,000 per year and couples earning $250,000 per year. And uh, those individuals will be able to have $10,000 in loans, in federal loans forgiven, $20,000 for individuals who are Pell Grant recipients, Pell Grant which go to lower income individuals in general. In addition to the direct loan forgiveness, Biden announced a series of additional loan forgiveness measures, including capping the uh, payments that future students will have to make on their federal loans and a plan to ultimately forgive student loan balances of $12,000 or less after 10 years of repayment. Now, because the poorest Americans generally don't have college degrees or the student debt that accompanies them, these benefits obviously are flowing primarily to middle and upper income households. They are flowing primarily to people who have college debt, who went to college and who by and large graduated from college who now have degrees. Now, placing income-based limits on who benefits from a policy like this is one way to prevent student debt forgiveness from just becoming a massive giveaway to the wealthiest Americans. But one of the obvious problems here is how high those caps are set, $125,000 per year for individuals, $250,000 for couples. According to an analysis published this week by the Penn Wharton Budget Model, that's a number crunching agency, sort of like the Congressional Budget Office, but outside of Congress, it's housed at the University of Pennsylvania. And the Penn Wharton Budget Model's analysis found that about 70% of the debt relief from this policy will go to borrowers in the top 60% of the income distribution. So that's not obviously the richest Americans because most of them don't have college debt. They just paid for it straight out. But this is overwhelmingly a policy that benefits middle and upper income Americans overall. And the idea that taxpayers, including college grads who paid back what they borrowed, should have to finance a $10,000 giveaway to Americans earning more than six figures, I think is just absurd on its face. Well-paid professionals with college degrees do not need welfare, no matter how much they may owe on those on those degrees. And it makes little sense to blow another $300 billion hole in the federal budget just to provide it to them. That's doubly true when you consider the fact that America is already on pace to run a $15 trillion deficit over the next 10 years, so it's hard to justify a massive handout to middle and upper income households, and not all middle and upper income households for that matter, just those who went to college. As a matter of fiscal policy, this is clearly a mistake. But it's not just a mistake As a matter of fiscal policy, it's probably also a mistake as a matter of monetary policy. You may recall back when President Joe Biden and Democrats in Congress were pushing the American Rescue Plan back in early 2021. There was one prominent economist in particular, Larry Summers, 
who was actually President Barack Obama's Treasury Secretary, who was waving red flags about that policy. He warned that it would likely trigger runaway inflation. It was going to overheat the economy. And again, this is a guy who was a veteran of the Obama administration and the Clinton administration, for that matter. He's not a Republican, not a conservative here. He was ignored. The American Rescue Plan passed. And of course, we've been feeling the effects of it for the past year or so. Now, Summers once again is warning that college debt forgiveness could worsen already high inflation. On Twitter earlier this week, Larry Summers wrote that, quote, student loan debt relief is spending that raises demand and increases inflation. It consumes resources that could be better used helping those who did not, for whatever reason, have a chance to attend college. And it will also tend to be inflationary by raising tuitions. Now, there's a bunch of thoughts there which are worth unpacking. So first of all, even though student debt relief doesn't really look like spending in the way we traditionally think of it. The government isn't cutting checks or writing grants or giving money to people directly the way it did during the pandemic. Uh, But economically, this functions about the same way. Because money is fungible, that means that student loan borrowers will effectively now have extra discretionary income equal to whatever they would have paid in monthly installments towards that $10,000 in loans that no longer exist. So that might sound great for those individual borrowers, but remember the standard definition of inflation. It is what happens when there's a larger supply of money chasing the same number of goods and services. Money that would have been spent paying back loans will, in other words, end up circulating in the regular economy. That means there will be more money chasing the same goods and services, and that, of course, is how you get inflation. Now, the last point that Summers makes in that tweet is also a good one. There's an entirely predictable consequence to this policy, and that is that colleges and universities will hike their tuition costs, and they will do it while telling future students not to worry about the rising sticker prices anyway because, hey, a portion of your loans are going to be forgiven after 10 years no matter what you pay back. In short, student loan forgiveness will contribute to inflation on both macroeconomic and microeconomic levels. As Summers went on to explain in that same thread on Twitter, unreasonably generous student loan relief will contribute generally to higher prices throughout the economy while simultaneously encouraging college tuition increases, which of course is just another form of inflation. Now, Biden's plan might have all those negative consequences, but it also doesn't do the one thing that it really should, which is address the real problem here of the incredibly high cost of higher education in the United States and the unimaginable debt loads that some students take on. Loan forgiveness does absolutely nothing to combat the high cost of college education. Addressing college cost inflation would require government officials to seriously reconsider the federal student loan program at all. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bam. You can check out more of our coverage of this just mess of a policy at Reason.com. Check out work by my colleagues Emma Camp and Elizabeth Nolan Brown in particular, who have done some fantastic work in this space. Again, that's at Reason.com. And you can catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. The recently passed and deceptively named Inflation Reduction Act is economic malpractice. So says Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council on this American Radio Journal Commentary. Unfortunately, the latest big government spending package coming out of the land of make-believe here in Washington, D.C. will do little to help American families and small businesses who are in desperate need of relief from crippling inflation and unaffordable energy costs today. The combination of massive increases of federal spending in the middle of record high inflation, tax increases in the midst of an economic downturn, in the unexplainable expansion of audits from the IRS is indeed economic malpractice. 
most people have a functioning understanding of the term malpractice based off of a medical definition or watching legal dramas on TV. However, if asked to give a specific definition of malpractice, most people would fall back on good old common sense. The public knows economic malpractice when it sees it. Its economic consequences show up in things like higher prices for food and gas and other necessities. It also shows up in paychecks as large portions of taxpayers' hard-earned income go to the federal government and in all but nine states, the state government as well. The latest form of economic malpractice comes in the form of the ironically named Inflation Reduction Act, just passed and signed into law by President Joe Biden. There are several reasons that the IRA may be the king of economic malpractice. For starters, the bill doesn't actually address our serious inflation problem, and if anything, it will make the situation much worse. The bill's proponents pulled a bait-and-switch by claiming that it reduces inflation by drastically reducing the federal deficit through tax increases. However, the bill doesn't do anything to address the underlying problem, which is reckless and unprecedented federal spending. In fact, the new federal law only dramatically increases federal spending. How exactly does Congress plan to pay for this wasteful spending? In asking that question, let's not forget that Congress doesn't actually plan to pay for the spending and it is deficit financing, which only drives the $30 trillion plus national debt of ours even higher. But in an attempt to decrease the deficit, Congress plans to spend an additional $80 billion to hire an additional 87,000 new agents at the already dysfunctional IRS in an attempt to shore up tax revenue collections. That's a staggering figure that would seem almost impossible to achieve during this tight labor market across the country. For baseball fans out there, you know there are exactly zero stadiums in all of the major leagues that come close to an 87,000 capacity. Think about that for a minute. The IRS will be hiring far more agents than can ever come close to fitting into the stands of your favorite team's stadium. Even more frightening is that not long ago, the recent abuses of the IRS, which targeted politically conservative groups under disgraced leadership of Lois Lerner, was only a decade ago. Let's not forget that history, lest our government be doomed to repeat that, albeit with 87,000 more agents at its disposal. The claim that some porters of the Act is that the IRS will be able to perform more audits on the wealthiest of Americans to ensure they are paying their fair share. However, multiple analyses, including one from the Congressional Budget Office, have shown that beefing up the IRS will serve to create more audits on middle-class Americans and hard-hit small businesses who will be more likely to simply pay the taxman when he comes knocking rather than coming up with expensive tax accountants and lawyers to fight their cases. A far better solution would be just to simplify the tax code and move to a flat tax, like four states did just in 2022 alone. Let's stop making everyday Americans lawbreakers through the Byzantine system of tax laws with the federal tax code. For years, Money Magazine would ask 50 professional tax preparers to fill out a hypothetical individual tax return. Every year, the vast majority of these paid professionals got it wrong with some years a grand total of zero coming up with the correct answer. Folks, if the so-called tax professionals can't get it right, it's well past time to tear up the current tax code and move to a flat tax. In summary, 
the claims of the Inflation Reduction Act won't increase taxes for Americans making less than $400,000 per year is simply untrue. A majority of Americans will now be on the hook for more reckless spending and tax increases for Congress's pet projects. No matter your definition of the word, the recent decisions at the federal level to kill economic growth through higher taxes and increase spending during record levels of inflation is economic malpractice, plain and simple. For more information, please visit ALEC.org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WFAM-AM in Augusta, Georgia, WBXR-AM in Huntsville, Alabama, along with WELP-AM in Greenville, South Carolina. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.